Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each week, he'll unpack stories, stories that you won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. This episode is brought to you by the Get Your Store. For all of your Get Your Rocks Off merch, including t-shirts, face masks, and yep, Hotel Tropicana coffee mugs, head over to getyourstore.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Get Your Rocks Off. Um, No John today. Uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the new Ronnie James Dio autobiography, Rainbow in the Dark. Um, That's going to be published in America, uh, the UK and some other places around the world. Uh, A couple of days, I think the same week. This episode of Get Your Rocks Off goes out. It'll also be coming out in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, all sorts of places over the next few weeks. Um, And of course, the first question I get asked, not unreasonably, is um, Ronnie uh, died in 2010. So how does it work that this book has come out uh, just over a decade later? Um, And it's actually much more straightforward than you might imagine. Ronnie had had begun writing his autobiography uh, a few years um, before his passing. And uh, at the time uh, that he became too ill to continue, he'd finished most of the book, uh, the couple of chapters that he hadn't uh, managed to realise fully. He'd left tons of notes, uh, where he wanted it to go, what he wanted to say. So we had uh, Ronnie's voice guiding us. I say us. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Wendy Dio, Ronnie's former wife and manager, uh, and myself. Um, We also had an enormous archive of material uh, to draw on uh, to try and put things exactly in Ronnie's words as far as possible. And um, I was lucky enough to have first known Ronnie back in 1980 uh, when he'd first joined Black Sabbath or first finished recording um, his first album with Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell. Um, And I I will get back to that in a moment. But just to finish how we actually came to to complete the book on Ronnie's behalf, as I say, he'd written uh, the vast majority of it He wrote it in longhand. Uh, He didn't use computers. And so uh, it took a long while. It was a laborious process. He would write this stuff in longhand. Then he would give it to Wendy. Wendy would get her team to uh, type it all up and put it on disc. Um, And that went on for a very long time. Um, But those were the files I drew on when it came to completing the manuscript, editing it, uh, and, and getting it up to speed. Um, and I, having ghosted many memoirs for various rock artists over the years, Francis Rossi of Status Quo, 
um, Don Arden, Sharon Osbourne's father. Um, I've just finished also ghosting a book with Stephen Wilson, whose group Porcupine Tree will be extremely well known to prog fans and any fan of modern cutting edge rock. Uh, and one or two others that uh, we don't need to trouble ourselves with here. The point I was going to make is that it's not normal. In my, the reason you hire a, a writer to come in and work with you on your memoirs is because you aren't a writer. You're a singer, you're a musician, um, and that's what you excel at. You certainly have a story, but how do you put it all down in a book? You bring in a writer. Um with Ronnie James Dio, it was a very unusual situation where he had written uh, most of the book already. And uh, as anyone that ever met him or saw him being interviewed or heard him being interviewed, as anyone will know, Ronnie had an extremely distinctive voice, not just a, a, an amazing singing voice, but the man could talk. Uh, he was uh, the kind of guy that could read a book in a day, would read a book in a day, was extremely articulate and had no trouble at all um, expressing himself on the page. So, uh, you know, that became a, a, a huge help because you can really hear him speaking when you read this stuff. And to fill the, the gaps that remained uh, towards the end, um, I was able to draw on the countless interviews Ronnie and I did together over the 30 years we knew each other. More important, Wendy had a vast archive of interviews that Ronnie had done. And uh, the two of us went through them all together. And I that was the material uh, I also used to draw from in terms of uh, trying to get this as, as accurate as possible to the way Ronnie said it, uh, the way Ronnie thought about it. And then the other crucial element um, was Wendy. Um, like a lot of rock musicians, uh, Ronnie uh, was intensely focused. But because he did all of this on his own, uh, one of the other things that having a writer there to bounce off of uh, helps you with is is pinpointing those areas that perhaps uh, you haven't discussed um, in any particular depth which you know the writer understands immediately that the fans and readers of that person's work would probably like to know just a little bit more not having Ronnie there to to go through that process um, I, I I interviewed Wendy extensively again Wendy who I'd known since 1980 and Wendy was able to um, give the backstory to so many incidents whether it was particular tours what it was like uh, to be in Rainbow Black Sabbath what it was like to lead his own band and this was invaluable because um the two were inextricably linked. I mean, somewhat like uh, Ozzy and Sharon, in the sense that, yes, Wendy was Ronnie's wife. Yes, Wendy was Ronnie's manager. But she was also more than that. She was his twin, if you like. And she was able to 
uh, flesh out some moments for me that uh, really, really helped add uh, a little more uh, insight. Or not, Ronnie provided the insight, but background detail. Um, and so where possible in the book, we do just have an insert of Wendy speaking. Um, not a not an enormous amount, but in crucial points here and there. And it really adds to the value of the book because, um, you know, Wendy has her own memories of the first time she met Ronnie James Dio. Wendy actually knew Richie Blackmore and all those people long before Ronnie did. Um and and there's a great deal of humour, a great many wonderful stories, but in a way, it's they're cherries on the cake. The cake and the icing is all Ronnie, and it was an enormous uh, pleasure and insight for me to work on the book because he'd taken the time and the trouble to uh, piece all these stories together in the first place, going right back to when he was born, his childhood, which is incredible, um, and right through the long, long struggle he had, 20 years, basically, from um, high school musician to rock and roll star. It was a long, long journey, and Ronnie paid a lot of dues along the way. Um, but that was a an area I really knew nothing about. And so to try and explain what I did know and what the book tells you that no one knew, I do kind of have to go back to the beginning and uh, when Ronnie and I first met, which was in February 1980. I was 21 and the youngest partner uh, in a publicity company in London called Heavy Publicity. Uh, PR companies uh, for, for groups will take a, a, an artist or a band on and do their best to get them in the papers and magazines and coordinate all that stuff and photographs, interviews, reviews, you name it. And uh, heavy publicity did, as you couldn't get from the name, did all sorts of huge rock bands as well as Black Sabbath they did at one different points. They'd done Ted Nugent, Dire Straits, Journey, Styx, Ario Speedwagon, um, Ultravox, Thin Lizzy, The Damned, Hawkwind, uh, lots of others that I can't remember anymore. But um, I was sent, the band were mixing the Heaven and Hell album in Paris with uh, producer Martin Birch. And the idea was was that the company would send one of their representatives, me, uh, plus a couple of journalists and a photographer over to Paris to do some brand new photographs of the band with Ronnie and um, get some early interviews done in, in, uh, for, for when the album came out in a couple of months after that so that the publicity was all timed and ready to go. Um, I was surprised to be selected for that job because Sabbath was such a huge and important client. But as it turned out, um, none of the senior figures wanted to go because the Aussie years of Sabbath, the group was so out of control, particularly Aussie, 
but also Bill and also the other, Tony and Geezer in their own different ways, that they were very high maintenance, that it was very hard work, uh, very hard, impossible, in fact, to, to please them all. And I think they'd maybe just had enough of that uh, in their own experience. So they sent the new boy. And uh, off I went, delighted, because I'd always been such a big Sabbath uh, fan. Um, but when I got there, I have to say, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't the happiest scene. Um, I was used to working with bands that generally it was fun to be with. Not always. Bands are just like the rest of us. They have good days and bad. Um, but generally speaking, if you're with a very successful rock band and they're doing a, a great tour and they've got a new album out and it's all going well, there will always be problems, but there will be generally more sunny days than dark. Sabbath seemed to be just on one big permanent downer and I couldn't understand why. Um, the bits of the Heaven and Hell album I'd heard were absolutely stunning. And um, I thought perhaps, you know, because it was well known that the last couple of years with Ozzy had not been good for them, or Ozzy, I thought this would be their, their you know, this their upswing. Happy days are here again. Not a chance. Uh, Tony and Giza were fairly monosyllabic. Um, I don't think they really like strangers or new faces. You had to really kind of prove yourself. Plus, they'd been round the block so many times by then that just showing them you'd got them on the cover of a magazine wasn't really going to light up their bulbs. Um, and so it was very hard to engage. They were fine. They did the photos. They did the interviews. But that was it. There was no extra warmth to be had anywhere. Um, except for Ronnie James Dio. Ronnie appeared to me as if he'd come in and, and kind of grabbed the band by the scruff of the neck and was determined to get things going again, um, not just musically, but in terms of vibe, in terms of attitude, in, in terms of getting the job done and getting it done really well. And that was the first time I encountered Ronnie James Dio, the perfectionist. Um, over the next couple of months, as the album came out, the tour began, I began to be quite awestruck, really, by the new Sabbath singer. Um, I'd seen Ronnie, of course, in Rainbow. I was very familiar with those albums he made with them, classic albums, Rising, Long Live Rock and Roll. But I hadn't... It wasn't until I worked with him personally and he was in Sabbath, which was a whole bigger job than forming a brand new band with the former Deep Purple guitarist, Richie Blackmore. This was stepping into Ozzy Osbourne's shoes. Uh, and although these days we're quite used to Queen having different singers, we're quite used to Van Halen having had different singers... We're quite used to Iron Maiden and, and so many other groups, Bad Company, Foreigner. Yeah, we, we live in the far future now, and the idea of, of having different people come in and do different things is, is hardly the end of the world. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was a different kettle of fish. You couldn't... You couldn't the, the rules were different. Um, 
But as we discovered with Ronnie James Dio, as we discovered uh, around about the same time with Brian Johnson of ACDC replacing Bon Scott, actually, folks, it could be done. And in fact, the band could come back and make perhaps the best album of their career, which is absolutely what happened with Black Sabbath and Heaven and Hell. Indeed, there's a whole generation of rock fans now that um, consider that by far the best album Sabbath ever made and much prefer that Dio period than the original Aussie period. I suspect these things are generational. You know, whoever happened to be James Bond when you got to that age where you started paying attention to the Bond movies will probably always be the James Bond for you. But Ronnie came in and, as you'll read in the book, he invented what we now call the devil horns, something his grandmother, his old Sicilian grandmother used to do, but which Ronnie used because Ozzy was so famous for flashing the peace sign. Ronnie came up with the, the, the little finger and the forefinger salute as a way to say there is continuity here, but it's going to be my way, so it's going to be a little different. And it was just a beautiful bit of physical graffiti, um, which now is so ubiquitous. You know, even my own children, who have no idea where it came from originally, will do it. Um, most of all, though, there were the songs, there was the voice. That's what the audience responded to. But what I also saw was that guy off stage and the leadership he brought to that group when they were really adrift. His tolerance, his patience, with people like the drummer Bill Ward, who, who was just six months away from walking out, basically, because of his own uh, drug problems and drink problems, which he talks about very, very honestly these days. Ronnie held it together. And uh, although it was probably the hardest job I ever did as a PR, it was also in many ways the most worthwhile. They were the first group to take me to America. Um, Sabbath uh, with Ronnie James Dio, their very first um, American tour together. was uh, Some of it was with Blue Oyster Cult. It was billed as the Black and Blue Tour. And I turned up um, when they arrived in New York to do two nights at Madison Square Garden. Now, that was an experience. I'd never been to America before. Uh, I'd never, so obviously never been to New York before. And suddenly, here I am in New York uh, with a group doing two nights at Madison Square Garden, which was the biggest deal in town, um, and still is. And it was different. Bill had gone from the band by then. They'd brought in Vinnie Apici who Ronnie was clearly very comfortable with, another American uh, with Italian origins. And the whole Sabbath camp seemed a lot happier. Um, you know, the album had, had done very well commercially all over the world. It had done very well critically. And I think they were really suddenly very, very comfortable with where they were, no longer fearful for the future. They knew they had something really, really good with Ronnie in the band. Um, of course, nothing stays the same forever. 
Uh, and as um, as you'll know from Googling, from history, from music magazines, but you'll actually get the, the detail in the book. Um, it, it only lasted really for one more album, one more great album, The Mob Rules. And then things began to rapidly fall apart. And this kind of is, you know, where the book... Um, one of the great things about the book is it explains the incredibly long, hard journey Ronnie had from being at school, playing the trumpet, um, having his own high school bands, following that dream, releasing a ton of singles, none of which were hits, doing, uh, going through various lineups, Ronnie and the Red Caps, Ronnie and the Prophets, um, the Electric Elves, the elves, and then Elf. And um, I, none of that stuff's ever really been documented properly. Even I, I didn't know 90% of the stuff that Ronnie reveals in the book. And it is incredible. The years spent in London uh, and New York and, and endless touring, endless misadventures, car crashes, um, near-death experiences, and indeed, uh, at least one death as well. And um, how Elf begin recording for Deep Purple Records, begin supporting Deep Purple, and through that, uh, this, this incredible relationship between Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio. The bottom line, though, was that Richie was the star who arguably, this isn't true, but arguably whoever he brought in, um, Rainbow would have enjoyed a similar level of success. Now, I, that's on paper. That's, well, Richie's a star. We're going to call the album Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. He just needs a singer. A good singer, but a good singer. He got more than a good singer with Ronnie James Dio. He got a kindred spirit, certainly musically. And um, Rainbow took off like a rocket. Incredible band, incredible guitarist, incredible singer. That holy grail for all the best bands. You've got to have the greatest singer and the greatest guitarist, and they've got to complement each other. But then Blackmore, in his own... Uh, unique way um never wanting to stand still never really satisfied or happy always moving 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 decides actually he wants to go in a brand new direction more pop where ronnie actually wants to go in the opposite direction and keep exploring this this new lyrical world he'd been able to to develop with richie um a more storytelling uh, elements of science fiction, elements of mythology, elements of, 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 of ancient history. And the two don't agree. And of course, there can only be one winner in a Richie Blackmore group. And that's when Ronnie um, is left high and dry, almost penniless, is going to become a solo artist, but meets Tony Iommi in a very fortuitous fashion. Um, and then, of course, uh, Sabbath was different. Sabbath was more, e he was equal. Um, he wasn't a newcomer looking for a break. He was an established star 
in his own right, and he would be bringing that to the, the, the Sabbath cause, which was foundering very badly at that point. Their last album with Ozzy, Never Say Die, <clears throat> definitely wasn't one of their best, and it certainly wasn't one of their best sellers. At the end of Sabbath, um, Ronnie is now more established than ever, more confident than ever. He's seen what he can do in not one, but two giant rock bands. And he finally decides to kind of take all that experience and use it to build his own band at last. No more having to worry about what the guitarist thinks about things. No more having to try and fit in with a group that already has a decade-long reputation. No more having to do things that he felt compromised him. And this is also where Wendy comes in very, very strongly because the two of them built the group Dio literally from the ground up, um, discovering Vivian Campbell, rediscovering Jimmy Bain, bringing Vinnie Apici in. Um, and as we now know, you know, some of that Holy Diver album, including the title track Holy Diver, would have ended up on the next Black Sabbath album had they stayed together. But instead, Ronnie forms uh, this brand new musical alliance, and they're all bigger than the sum of their parts. Uh, Vivian Campbell is, is a kid. He's really young. He's, he's definitely his first time at the rodeo. But he's able to bring in ideas, excitement, energy... Jimmy Bain, ostensibly a bass player, but who can also sing, play keyboards, and is in his own right an, an accomplished songwriter. Um, he'd worked with people like Phil Lynott, um, Midjour, many other people, the Scorpions. He was a really uh, far more talented man than um, his, uh, his title as bass player would lead you to believe. But Ronnie harnessed it with Wendy's full support and also Wendy taking care of all the day-to-day -day details and, and encouraging him to, to be bold. So that they go out on their first tour on their own, they do the artwork for the album on their own, they make the album on their own before going to a record company. So that by the time the whole thing is ready to launch, every bit of it, is the way Ronnie wants it. Every bit of it, Wendy's helped him achieve that. So it's an incredible story. And, and in terms of the book, it actually ends at Madison Square Garden in 1986 on the Sacred Heart tour. Sacred Heart was the third Dio album, their third multi-platinum album, and their last with Vivian Campbell in the band. So it's, it was the end of an era, if you like. Dio, of course, would continue for many years. There would be a return to Black Sabbath, albeit just for one album in the early 90s, Dehumanizer. And then this wonderful renaissance that occurred, uh, I guess, around 2006, 2007, when the band come back together, uh, not as Black Sabbath, but as Heaven and Hell. 
an inspired name and um, built the whole thing back up again, released a new album, which was tremendous. And one of my favorite tracks on that was Bible Black. All this stuff you can look up at your leisure. But Heaven and Hell came back and, and absolutely reestablished that lineup of Black Sabbath as, you know, if there are, there are, I was going to say two definitives, you can only have one definitive, but there were two absolutely brilliant lineups of Black Sabbath, the Aussie one and the Ronnie James Dio one. But that may be for another book sometime. Uh, I guess we'll wait and see. Ronnie certainly uh, uh, wrote about a lot of that. He certainly gave uh, notes and outlines and directions to where that part of the book would go and what he wanted. But initially, uh, Wendy um, decided, and, and she was absolutely right, that the, this particular book would be better ending at Madison Square in 86. As you'll find out when you read the book, Ronnie, uh, a New Yorker through and through from upstate New York, the dream for him as a kid was to see his name in lights uh, at Madison Square Garden. And um, he didn't get there with Rainbow. Rainbow were huge in Japan and Britain and Europe, but never that big in, Amer in North America. Sabbath did get there, of course. I was there. I was very fortunate enough to be there for uh, the two nights they did with Blue Oyster Cult. They then did other shows there on subsequent tours. But 1986 was the first time Ronnie got there under his own steam. It didn't say Black Sabbath or Rainbow. It just said Dio. And so the book begins with a very nice little sketch Ronnie originally conceived where he was actually in the dressing room before that show at Madison Square reflecting on what he'd been through to get there from being a, 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 a hopeful kid walking past Madison Square Garden and, and, and kind of vowing to himself that one day, one day my name will be above the door. Not always entirely convinced that that would be the case, but it was certainly the dream. And then... Um, when Sabbath get there, I think um, there's this moment where they're going to take a picture and they've forgotten to bring a camera. And so he does, he does that um, and it's amazing. And Ronnie was amazing at Madison Square Garden. He absolutely filled that room with his presence. This was a man that when he walked in the room, everybody stopped talking and turned to him. And then the book ends... Um, again with that that show where D, the name Dio is finally up in lights and um, it's all rather beautiful and poignant because the struggle the struggle is so hard he's discouraged at almost every turn it seems or just when a bit of good luck comes along it suddenly turns bad that by the time Ronnie did finally get to Madison Square Garden under his own name, he'd, he'd lived enough, he'd been through enough adventures uh, 
to have lived the life of ten rock stars. Indeed, I'm sitting here right now trying to think of another major star that fronted not one, not two, but three major multi-platinum, game-changing, cornerstone, historic rock bands. And if you need a place to start musically, start with Rising, Rainbow Rising. Then go to Heaven and Hell, Black Sabbath. And then go to Holy Diver, Dio. And suddenly you've got three masterpiece albums that all were developed and um, very much put together with Ronnie James Dio in charge or semi-in-charge. And I'm, I'm still trying to think of somebody. I can't think of another singer that has done that. Um, but then Ronnie James Dio was entirely unique in so many ways. Um, the man himself, um, I was a little frightened of Ronnie in the early days because he was a perfectionist. And that didn't just mean, oh, let's have a little tweak. Let's have a, let's do this or maybe do that. It was, this is how it's done. And you better do it that way. And he'd be very patient. But if you kept messing up, suddenly you would feel the full force of his personality. Um, people uh, used to joke and say of Sir Alex Ferguson, the famous Manchester United football manager, that uh, he would give players the hairdryer treatment in the dressing room if he was pissed off with them. Ronnie James Dio had perfected the hairdryer treatment years before Sir Alex was on the scene. But it was always justified. He wasn't a mean or nasty person. He just was a person of enormous energy, dedication, did not compromise and understood implicitly where the music needed to go, how it needed to be presented. And he'd learned, he'd learned his lessons with Elf, with Rainbow, with Sabbath, and he brought all that to bear in Dio. But he was also an exceptionally kind and patient man. I remember taking him to another show, another artist I was working with at the time, and Ronnie wanted to go, so I took him. And I was surprised when I picked him up that there was no security. And he was like, no, I don't need security. I thought, mm, okay. And we went to this packed, packed ballroom in London. And instantly Ronnie was surrounded by fans. And I did, I must admit, I was worried that something untoward might happen, that, you know, maybe we should have some security somewhere. Ronnie wouldn't have it. Instead, he just stood there for over an hour, signed every single autograph anybody asked him to sign, chatted to people, knew some of their names. He, he literally never forgot a name. I can barely remember my own children's names. Ronnie never forgot anybody's name. And you could see the bond he had with those fans. You could see how different it was from all the other people that I worked with and how they dealt with their fans. All artists are grateful to their fans and love their fans and, and, and wouldn't have any kind of career without them. But Ronnie really was 
more than any other I've ever worked with was someone who actually genuinely cared. And there was no such thing as, well, I've got to leave now, I'm a little busy now, or now isn't a good time. Now was always a good time when it came to the fans. And that quality comes across uh, on stage, on record, in interviews. Uh, and, of course, if you, if you were to meet the man, which you could so easily, if you went to a show and you waited afterwards, he would appear. And that understanding, that knowledge, that perception, it goes through the whole community, the rock community. And so people's memories of Ronnie James Dio are very tender, uh, very deep, um, because there really was no one else like him. An exceptionally intelligent man, extremely well-read, could have been a scientist, could have been a mathematician, could have been a, a, an exceptional trumpet player, actually. Although he, tell, he explains in the book how he hated the trumpet, but his father made him practice it for three hours every day. And I mean every day, for years and years as a child. Um, which also absolutely had an effect on, a, a positive effect on, on, on how good his voice was, how he was able to sustain notes, his breathing technique. So much of what he learned as an as a extremely skilled trumpet player would inform the way he sang. And as I'm saying that, I'm remembering something he said. He, he talks about it in the book. But again, I remember him telling me this and being very impressed with it. And he said that when he sings on stage, he literally would either uh, be able to spot someone in the audience or if the lights were too bright, he would simply imagine a single person in the audience and he would perform the entire show to them. When he sang a song, he would be singing it to them. And he said, rather than that kind of generic arena, kind of everybody join in and, and trying to convey the fact that you are literally singing to everybody, he said his technique was the opposite, to make it so personal, so that, so that everybody in the audience felt that they were the one he was singing to and as soon as he explained that to me so much of what he did made sense um the gestures the little details the tilting of the head the secret smiles all that stuff if you go back now and look at the the old clips you suddenly go ah i get it i really do get it and for someone with such a powerful voice Someone working in the medium of rock and metal in the 70s and 80s when uh, rock voices, it wasn't just enough for them to be very good. They had to be extreme. You know, you think here of Gillen on those early Purple albums and that kind of screech. You think of even David Coverdale, you know. Uh, listen to Here I Go Again, the American version, and you'll hear him do that big, long scream in the middle. Um... Robert Plant, the master of the scream. It was very much a trope. It was very much how you kind of uh, showed your skills as a rock and metal singer in those days. I'm 99% sure, mainly because I can't think of one right now, 
I don't think Ronnie James Dio ever did that. For a guy with so much power at his disposal, he was an incredibly sensitive singer. He could do ballads so beautifully. He had a very high register without doing that metal screeching. He could sing in a very high register, but it could be a ballad, it could be an almost whispered evocation, or it could be the full-on air raid siren. Um, and then, of course, you know, more familiar, there was that gravelly, throaty lion's roar that he was able to summon up. But the technique, the class that he showed in the his choice of when to go full Monty and his uh, uh, choices when not to, there's a lot of light and shade in Ronnie James Dio's voice and in his music. But I suppose most of all, it was that intelligence that came across. You always knew Ronnie had a very big brain and that it never stopped working. Um, and although I found him quite intimidating when I was a very young man working with him for the first time, I think also tainted by the fact that Sabbath themselves were in such a dark place, it seemed right then. That changed very rapidly. When I got to know Ronnie again in the uh, mid-80s, uh, the Dio years, I did actually wonder if he'd even remember who I was. Um, but he was... <laughs> he remembered. He always remembered everybody. And we became friends again. We did a lot of work together. In the mid-90s, I started to do PR for him again uh, for a little while. And then in the early 2000s, uh, with Heaven and Hell back on the scene... Uh, I was delighted that he and the guys had managed to do that. And we did more interviews, more different projects together. And I have to say, he was genuine. He was honest. If he said he was going to do something, he did it. And trust me, those qualities are extraordinarily rare, too rare in show business, but particularly in the music business where almost everybody is a flake um, one of the reasons I've always loved working in rock music is that the artists are around for such a long time. They kind of leave that stuff behind and they eventually just become whoever they really are. Who Ronnie James Dio really was, you will find out when you read the book. It's called Rainbow in the Dark. Um, it's all Ronnie's work. As ever, it's honest, hard-hitting, takes no prisoners but it's also surprisingly tender, wonderfully insightful. And something I hadn't necessarily thought through or anticipated when I began uh, helping Wendy put the pieces together was just how wonderful it was to hear Ronnie's speaking voice again. Because the way he wrote, the way the words come across on the page, I can still hear his voice in my mind. And it was such a distinctive voice. And I hadn't heard it, of course, since he died. And to hear it, to read it, to hear it, to feel it, it's like having him back again with us. And that truly is a gift. Okay, so that's the end of um, this uh, special uh, edition of Get Your Rocks Off. Anything to do with Dio is always special. The book is going to be out probably by the time you hear this, if not, uh, same week, I believe. 
And um, I look forward to hearing what you all think. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you listen to it. To get you some conversation online, follow us on Twitter at GetcherPod. Until next time. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.